Well, today we're going to be talking about law. And Paul spends a great deal of time, you will have already noticed, in Galatians talking about law. So I just want us to understand exactly what it is we're talking about um, so that we're all on the same page. We all have some standard, some standards that we live by, right? We all have some standards we live by, whether we're conscious of it or not. For example, one of the standards I realize I have is that no one should use a merging lane to pass by other cars. If you do that, I have a very hard time believing you are an otherwise good person. Uh, my daughter has a, a standard for goodness too, and it's happiness. That's her standard for goodness. Sugar makes her happy, therefore it's good. Broccoli makes her unhappy, therefore it's bad. Screaming makes her happy, therefore screaming is good. Pants make her unhappy, therefore pants are bad. Rob once found her standing in front of a big window in our living room wearing not but a t-shirt, just Peter Pan style. <laughs> and he's like, Amber, babe, you, you, you can't stand in front, of the, in front of the window naked. And she turns around, face full of innocence, and says, am I making bad choices, Daddy? I mean, like, no, no recognition that this was in any way inappropriate, just straight porky pigging it for the neighbors, just <laughs> basking in the warmth of the sun on her cheeks. All four of them. Nakedness makes her happy, therefore nakedness is good. Her standard of goodness is that which makes her happy. And we all have a standard of goodness. We all have a center by which we orient our world, by which we judge right and wrong. And the theological term for this is law. Historically, the law Paul refers to is, is a set of moral and physical guidelines that God gave to his people through Moses. Uh, the Ten Commandments, cleansing rituals, dietary restrictions, circumcision, stuff like that. And living by these standards made people acceptable to God. But practically, you can just think of the law. You can think of law that simply in, like this. It's the standard of goodness by which we know we are good. So... We're picking up today in chapter 3 in Paul's letter to the Galatians. And just to recap a few things about this letter, Paul planted churches on his missionary journeys. And he planted one in Galatia in Asia Minor. And he would often support and continue to supervise these churches by writing letters to them. And, uh, and in these letters, he would encourage them. He would correct any misunderstandings that they had about the gospel. And Paul is writing this letter because he hears from the churches in Galatia that there are these social and ethnic divisions within the church. And he knows this must mean that there is a misunderstanding of the gospel. They are misunderstanding what it is that makes someone fully acceptable to God. So the passage we're going to be looking at is a bit dense. So I'm going to give you some context, some specific context about the audience and then some general context to help us unpack it. First, uh, the spe specific context about Paul's audience. So the, the, the first Christians were Jewish, right? And then the gospel spread, and it spread out lots of different places. And, and Gentiles, non-Jewish people, lots of Gentiles started following Jesus. But because they didn't grow up Jewish, they weren't following the Jewish customs and laws. And there was a group of teachers in Galatia, there was this group of, of Jewish teachers who were telling the Gentile converts that in order to be fully pleasing to God, you, you not only had to follow all, all the moral commands, but you also had to follow all the Jewish uh, customs like circumcision and the dietary laws. Now, I want to point out that their error does make some sense when you think about it. Moses received the law from God and, and said, if you do this, you will be acceptable to God. And this had been the paradigm for like 15, 1600 years so when the apostles arrive on the scene and they're, they're preaching a gospel of grace, 
that you can be acceptable to God simply by believing in his son, Jesus Christ, then there was, of course, a period of adjustment for some of these teachers. Some of these teachers, they weren't even outright denying the gospel of grace. They weren't. They were just trying to add a little bit of stuff to it. Just some extra stuff to, to make sure that God accepts us. So, so yes, of course, of course you must begin with the gospel. You must begin by receiving Jesus. That's how you become reconciled to God. But after that, you have to add to it observance of the law, the Jewish law and customs, in order to continue to be reconciled to God. So in other words, yes, Jesus wiped your slate clean. He did. He took all the misdeeds off your record. He did his part. But now it's up to you to replace all those bad deeds on that empty slate with good ones instead. That's what's going to keep you pleasing to God. And Paul says, no, no, this isn't the gospel that you accepted. Who bewitched you? So, so that's the specific context, right? That's, that's the audience to whom Paul is writing. These people who have freedom from the law in Jesus, but they're returning to the law to be pleasing to God, even though Jesus has already made them pleasing to God. So moving on to the big, the general context, the, the, the big picture. And I just want to make sure that we, this won't be long, but I want to make sure that we have all of our definitions right and our, and our names straight, because this is a dense passage. So three things mentioned in our text uh, that we need to understand. I know it's going to be boring to all but five of you, but stick with me. Uh, can you throw up that first slide? Okay. So number one, we have the promise, the covenant. This was the promise given to childless, super old Abraham in the year <coughs> BC. You don't know anyway. You don't know. Nobody knows. It's probably somewhere between 2100 and 1800 BC. God made a covenant with Abraham and he promised to, to make him a great nation. And he promised that all nations would be blessed through him. In other words, I will bring salvation to all of the nations through your seed. So that's the first thing that we need to know about. Second, the law. The law was given to Moses, as I mentioned. So the people would know how to be acceptable to God. And this included the moral law, the Ten Commandments and such, but it also included the, the ceremonial cleansing rituals, the dietary laws, the, the circumcision, things like that. And this was around 15th century BC. And then last, we have to understand the seed. This is Jesus. He lived a sinless life. He fulfills every requirement of the law like we should have done, but then he dies the death demanded of sinners, which we should have died. He takes our place on the cross, and so when we put our faith in him, our sins are covered by that sacrifice. The seed fulfills the promise to Abraham by bringing salvation through him. So this is AD 33-ish. So keep these three things in mind. This is our larger context. Keep these three things in mind as we read the text. All right, Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human contract that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say in two seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. Listen, verse 18. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. I want to stop there and just unpack this before we move on. 
there is a huge difference between a promise and a law. For example, if I promise my daughter that I'm gonna give her Valentine's Day candy when she comes home, all she has to do to get that promise is to believe it. That's all she has to do to get the candy, just believe me and come home. But if I tell her you can't have the Valentine's Day candy unless you clean your room, then that's no longer a promise, that's actually, that's a contract, right? So, so Paul is using this example of Abraham to illustrate that salvation didn't come through the law, through a contract, it came through a promise. It didn't come through cleaning the room. It came through a promise. Let's say you're married, right? And you are having some trouble, you and your wife, and so you go to your pastor for some counsel and he, and he asks you some questions. He says, you know, okay, are, are, you, are you making time to talk and really listening to it? Yes, yes, of course we're doing that. Okay, are you, uh, are you helping around the house? Are you, are you helping with the kids? Yes, I'm, I'm a total egalitarian. Okay, are you, um, are you making time for romance? Are you, yes, yes, we're, we're, we're going out on dates, we're, we're, we're going golf, golfing and putt-putt and all that stuff. And, and so he says, no, but um, how, how often are you, you know, having relations and you're like well you know what we actually we don't do that and he's like wait a minute what <laughs> what do you mean you don't do that and you say well you know because th the bible says don't lust it says that you shouldn't be sexually immoral so so you know we're, we're just we're just trying to be extra safe so that's what we're doing we're just trying to be extra safe we don't want to do anything wrong now i don't know many pastoral care sessions that would end with your pastor telling you to leave his office and immediately go know your wife in the biblical sense, but this would be one of them because you're married. Because you're married. When you took those vows, the promise that you made changed your relationship. It made sex acceptable. It made what was unacceptable acceptable. So avoiding it is not only unnecessary, but it's actually laying a burden on you. It builds a wall that prevents authentic intimacy with your spouse. It's gonna ruin your marriage. The gospel of grace changed the relationship between God and his people. It made what was unclean perfectly acceptable. It made food perfectly acceptable. It made a lack of circumcision acceptable. And so going back to those practices was not only unnecessary, but it laid heavy burdens on the people. It built a wall that, that, that prevented intimacy with their God. By the way, when God makes his promise to Abraham, we read that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul, again, he uses the example of Abraham here to underscore that even in the Old Testament, even in the Old Testament, faith in the promise is what brought salvation, not works. Believing, just believing the promise. Faith changes the relationship and that, and that new relationship, that relationship makes our salvation secure. You don't have to add anything else to it. I wanna tell the story for a minute um, of when God makes this promise to Abraham because there are a few peculiarities to it that I think are important. I think that they tell us a lot about the character of God and how he intended to save us. So God says to Abraham, I'm gonna make you a great nation. All nations will be blessed through you and your seed. And then God seals this promise to him with a covenant. And Abram asks, God, how, how do I know? How do I know that this is gonna happen? So Genesis 15, verse nine. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. And the sun was setting and Abraham fell into a deep sleep. When the sun had set 
and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land. You know, next time that you're having a conversation with someone and they don't seem to be believing what you're saying to them, I want you to, I don't know, cut five animals in half in front of them. I promise they're gonna take you more seriously. What is that? That's so gross. We, we, you know, we, we read this and it feels like a little weird and morbid, but, but this was actually just the customary way of making a binding covenant, a contract in the time of Abraham. The same way that we would create a contract, you know, we would outline the, the promises and the requirements of the contract, and then we would outline legal consequences should the contract be broken. This, and in the same way, this ancient ritual of covenant would, would outline the, the requirements and the promises, and then these animals cut in half and laid beside one another made a statement, which was this, if I break this covenant, May the same fate befall me that has befallen these beasts. And so then to seal the covenant, both parties would walk between the halves of the animals. That's how you signed your contract, so to speak. So, so, so what's fascinating about this, what's fascinating about this, uh, when, it, when God makes his covenant with Abraham, two things. One, God sets up the promises of the covenant. He says, I'm going to bless you, make you into a great nation. All nations will be blessed through you. That's the promise, right? Where's the requirement? It's not there yet. Second, uh, the sealing of the covenant would require both parties to pass through the halves of those animals. But what happens? Only God walks through. Abraham doesn't walk through. He's sleeping. So, so what does this mean? This, this means that God, it means God's salvation to all nations came through a promise that God made, that God sealed, and, that, and for which God only accepted the consequences of breaking the promise. He's the only one who passes through. He's the only one who says, if I break my promise, let me be torn into pieces. It's all him. Paul's trying to help us understand. He's saying, he's saying listen, God loves you too much to leave salvation in your hands. He doesn't leave it up to you. Because he knows, he knows we are going to fail. He knows that we're gonna yell at our kids when all they want is our attention. He knows we're gonna pretend not to see the dishes in the sink, so hopefully someone else will take care of them. He knows we're gonna be petty. He knows we're gonna say things to each other that are so mean that neither the, the speaker nor the hearer can ever forget it. He knows that, that we're gonna trade our bodies for security. He knows we're gonna steal, we're gonna lie. He knows that we are going to walk right past him in our constant and compulsive pursuit of amusement. And he knew all this, all this he knew before he created us, but he didn't want to spend eternity without us. And so he didn't leave it up to us. He left it up to himself instead. Hebrews 6.13 when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. Guys, don't frantically clean your room when you're already holding the candy. You have God's approval. You already have it. So who are you doing all that work for? It's not him. Don't slowly people please yourself to death. Or, or, or maybe you're judging other Christians. Maybe you're judging other Christians who can't keep their room as clean as yours. They already have God's approval. Why do you feel like they need yours too? 
I spent the greater part of my life believing that I needed to perform to be loved. And I had a, an incident that happened when I was in fifth grade that kind of crystallized this idea for me. I was, um, I was in fifth grade, I was a particularly unattractive fifth grader, and I know this because, as you may recall from other sermons, I once showed my husband a picture, uh, an old family photo, and after I had pointed out all the aunts and uncles and grandparents and cousins, he points to the only unidentified person and says, who's the little fat boy? Yes, I was the little fat boy. I just can't let it go. I was wearing a skirt. Anyway, I was, <laughs> I was unattractive. And, and I was also going through a phase where I uh, was kind of averse to showering. So I would go into school and I would have my greasy hair pushed back in one of these fat plastic headbands circa the 80s. And one day I, was, I got there and my headband got knocked off. So I grabbed it real quick. I pushed it back in. And then I turned to this boy named Dominic who was equally as unattractive as me, and so therefore I felt safe with him. Uh, and I asked him, hey, hey, does my hair look okay? <laughs> and I'll never forget what he said. He said, well, I mean, it looks the same. I wouldn't say it looks okay, but, you know, it looks the same. Pimply little twit. But I'll never forget that because it crushed me. Oh, my gosh, it hurts. And I remember in the midst of that hurt, I was... I was so upset by it. I was so hurt. In the midst of that hurt, I remember deciding that as much as it was within my power, I would never allow myself to be just okay ever again. So I performed. Oh, I performed. I performed for people. I became a Christian, then I performed for God and people. Some of the most significant work I've done in counseling and in regroup happened as a result of this. And, and, and still, it rears its ugly head in my marriage sometimes. My husband and I, um, we keep an invisible scorecard. I don't know how you guys do it in your marriage, um, but we keep an invisible scorecard. And, and because he's an optimist and I'm codependent, it's never a scorecard of things we've done wrong. It's a scorecard of things we've done right. So if he watches Ember, our daughter, one night so I can go out with a friend, then I offer to do it the next night. If, if he does the dishes, I feel like I need to clean the bathroom. But then when we do inevitably hurt one another or have, you know, some kind of disagreement, we, we bring up our scorecard, right? And it usually something like this. I am, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry that I shrunk your Deadpool t-shirt in the wash, but, but I did the dishes for you. What are we doing? We're performing for love. And why do we do this? Why? Because we're insecure. And we're insecure because sometimes we forget our vows, to love, honor, and cherish for better or for worse. We revert to the law of performance because sometimes we forget the promise that we made. Paul's asking, why? Why are you going back to performance? Why are you cleaning your room when I'm holding out the candy? Guys, it's no way to live. It's no way to live. Picking up here in verse 19. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. By the way, scholars have no idea for the most part what Paul is talking about with the angels, uh, but they mostly agree that what he's saying after that is that um, God spoke the law to people through a mediator, that being Moses, but God spoke uh, the promise directly to Abraham, and therefore the promise would naturally be more absolute than the law. But again, there's debate about that, but it's not essential, so we'll move on. Verse 21, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. 
For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. In other words, if we could gain life by following the law, guys, we would have, right? At least some of us would have. And more importantly, God would have let us because you know what? Why would he send his son to die for our sins so that we could live if there was any other way for us to live? Why would he do that? That would make him a terrible, terrible dad. Verse 22, scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. I actually prefer the New Living Translation here because it's really understandable. It says, but the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. We are all prisoners of sin. And if you're a prisoner, you're locked up. And if you're locked up, you cannot free yourself. So we can only receive this freedom by believing in Jesus Christ. And at this point, you're probably like, okay, I get it. I get it. You've made your point three different ways. I can't free myself. I can't do it on my own. Check, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that. But, but, but listen, I want you to really think about this. I want you to think about it because chances are you're still doing it. You're still doing it. We all have a law that we live by. Again, we all have a standard of goodness by which we judge right and wrong. You do, I do, I promise you do. And for the most part, it's still good deeds. I know I'm selfish and irritable and I don't pray enough. So, so you know, I try to become good or better by doing good deeds, you know? Pick up my dog's poop when I walk him. Devotions, prayer, giving money to the guy on the corner, reading Ember the long book tonight. It's like, I, I know, I know that God's grace was enough to get me into the kingdom, but maybe I should step it up a bit to keep my space reserved. And this is not unique to Christianity. It's not. You may not believe in Jesus at all, but I bet you believe that going, doing good stuff will mean good stuff happens to you. Some of you are Christians and you're like, oh, I believe that too. Sinking in your seat. Listen, it's, it, it's okay. Karma, karma is the... It's the cultural narrative right now. If I do good, then good will happen to me. And it's really hard to not pick up at least some of that. Um, it's hard to be immune to that, even if we believe the gospel of grace. Karma is the cultural narrative. But it is a very, very dangerous thing to put your faith in. Karma is the cultural narrative. And, and, and the tragedy of that narrative is at least threefold. First, it means you'll always be working. You better keep that pedal to the floor until you die. Second, it means that if you find yourself in a season of great suffering or of loss or of illness and it does not feel that any good things are happening to you, then what does that say about you? Karma tells us that that means you're not actually good. Third, and, and probably most frightening, if we believe that doing good will bring us good, then the logical extension of that is that doing good, being good, will ensure our salvation. It's enough to get us to heaven. But guys, Christian or not, I, I promise you, if we're really honest, there's not a single one of us in here who on our ledger, the deposits outweigh the withdrawals. If we believe that, we are using unfair scales. How, how else can I feel morally superior to the jerk who just blew by me in the merge lane when in the same day, I said something so hurtful to my husband and disguised it as a joke or sarcasm? 
If we're satisfied with our ledger, guys, we, we are not looking hard enough. We're not looking hard enough. So the thoughtful person, which I'm sure all of you are, might eventually ask, if we've established this salvation by grace through faith alone, if we've, if we've established this, then, then, then what exactly is the law good for? It's a fair question. Not least of all, it's good for helping us to look hard enough. That's what it's good for. So we're not so blinded by our own good deeds that they mask the symptoms of our disease like perfume on dead pine cones, the the potpourri of self-reliance that covers up the stench of rot. The law helps us look hard enough. The law is God's grace to us when we erroneously begin to think that we are killing it. When you decide, you know, to, to run the Boston Marathon and you're running every day, you're eating well, you're rubbing magical essential oils on the soles of your feet every night. I mean, you are just doing all the things and you show up on the day of the race and you're stopped at the door and they say, hey, what's your time? And, and you say, well, I can run a marathon in five and a half hours. And they say, ooh, I'm sorry, but you don't qualify. You're gonna have to run it in four. And, and you're like, but, but I'm at peak performance right now. I, I, I run super long distances every day. I only eat fish and vegetables. I'm more fit than any of my friends. My feet smell like lavender right now. I mean, I've got to be able to qualify for this race, right? And they say, listen, you can run the Disney marathon with the Van Dykes, but you don't qualify for this one. And you're heartbroken because you're 40 years old and you're four foot 11, basically you're Kevin Hart and, and, and you're training as much as your body will allow without injury and you realize it would take a miracle for you to qualify. No amount of training is gonna cut it. The law, God's standard of goodness is good to demonstrate to us that we cannot qualify for God's mercy no matter how hard we train, no matter how hard, no matter how much effort we put in, the gap is just too big. That's what the law is good for. It helps us to look hard enough. So does this mean we shouldn't do good? Of course not. The law is good for more than just revealing our sin. And we'll talk about that next week. But of course we should do good. It's a way of pleasing the God who saves us. But we should never make the mistake of thinking that that is the the means of salvation. Keller writes, the law has the power to show us that we are not righteous, but it cannot give us the power to be righteous. Ironically, if we think we can be righteous by the law, we have missed the main point of the law. The law helps us to look hard enough. And here's the brutal reality, guys. When we look hard enough, we see. We see how very selfish and prideful and lustful and greedy we really are. The law lays naked all the wickedness of our soul that we use, we try to call complexity. It lays it all bare. The law condemns us, but... That same condemning law is also God's grace. It's the grace of God. If if a doctor called you and and told you that your loved one had cancer, but there was this painful, uh, intense procedure that would save their life, you wouldn't hide the cancer from them. You wouldn't allow them to go on believing they were fine so that they they wouldn't uh, have to endure the the pain of the treatment or face the reality of their disease. That's, That's not grace, that's murder. Yes, the law condemns us, but it too is the grace of God because without it, we would not know that we are sick. 
and we would not therefore take the medicine that can save our life. We live in a world that has real trouble reconciling a God of grace with a God of law, but in truth, grace and law were never meant to be separated. God himself unites them at the very moment that he gives the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. In Exodus, Moses requests that God would show him his glory. And God says, yeah, I'll do it. I'll, I'll cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name to you. Exodus 34, 6. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming his name, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. From this account, it feels like God's name seems a little schizophrenic, right? How, how does all his goodness include both grace that forgives thousands, but, in, but, but also uh, justice that would leave no guilty person unpunished? How, how are those things together? Because, and, and this is probably the most important thing that I will say all day, so, so please pay attention to it, because both justice and grace are united in Jesus Christ, the seed through whom the promise comes. God will never let anybody off the hook. For the whole of created history, he will never let anyone off the hook. He will never fail to exact justice for sin. Every sin we have ever committed or will ever commit will be punished by death. Every single one of them because every single one of them has been nailed to the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. And when we put our faith in him, the blood from those wounds covers us with his righteousness. So when God looks at us, he sees his son instead. The price had to be paid and it was. Sin was punished in Jesus because God is a God of justice. Sin was forgiven in Jesus because God is a God of grace. All of his goodness always includes both. One or the other will only ever be half the truth about the character of God. So my question for you as we prepare for communion is this. Do you believe his promise? Do you believe it? Do you believe that you don't have to add anything to Jesus in order to be acceptable to God? Do you believe his promise? And if you do, then how would that change the laws that you live your life by now? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for loving us too much to leave our salvation up to us. Thank you that before you ever created the world, you knew that we would fail so profoundly that you had already devised a way to save us. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the law. Thank you for the law that we hold up to ourselves and it's the light by which we see that we do not add up. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for helping us to recognize that we need you, that we need help, that we will never be good enough on our own because through this knowledge comes the possibility of life. Lord, let no one in this place leave here and continue to try to work their way into heaven. 
Let no one in here continue to live under the burden and the fear and the anxiety that maybe they don't add up enough for you. God, nobody does. But you made a way. You made a way for us. Jesus, thank you. We're grateful. We praise your name and we, ask, and we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen.